This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I really feel personally a sense of, of disillusionment with how things work, but I also feel like we cannot give up hope that things could be different because it's in that uncertainty around hope that motivates us into action and to say that, you know, we are all capable of making some changes to actually do things differently, to change the way things work. We're not limited to trying to save this broken system that we have. We really could be working towards something else. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a podcast that reimagines citizen as a verb, not a legal status. This season is all about how we practice democracy. What can we get rid of? What can we invent? And how do we change the culture of democracy itself? We're leaving the theoretical clouds and hitting the ground with inspiring examples of people and institutions that are showing us new ways to govern ourselves. In the U.S., we have this constitutional right to petition the government to seek redress for our grievances. And you know we have mad grievances. But what do we really get to do with them? We can email, call, or fax our representatives. 
We can attend a local meeting, make a 90-second statement. We can march through the streets, shout outside people's homes, tag lawmakers, and scathing posts on social media. We do these things hoping to affect the folks who make and enforce policies with the threat of throwing them out of office if they don't. And then we try it all over again. And again. And again. But what if there was more than petitioning, protesting, and voting yes or no on a person? What if we could influence the policymaking process without becoming a billionaire first and just buying the policymaking process? I've got great news. We can. We can upgrade our democratic systems to include our voices in ways that stretch our standard definition of civic participation and of politics. I first met Claudia Falisch in 2022. A friend was advising her as she built out this new organization called Democracy Next, or Dem Next for short. For years, Claudia has been studying, writing about, and leading experiments at the forefront of democratic innovation, basically giving us new ways to participate in self-governance. Before starting Dem Next, she was at the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD for short, where she literally worked on the quote-unquote future of democracy. During that time, she tracked hundreds of examples of citizen assemblies, which bring together a broadly representative bunch of people selected by lottery to decide how we should live together. Now, in our last episode, we heard from Ense Ufat, former CEO of the New Georgia Project. Ense emphasized the value of engaging community in conversation so they could better use elections to exercise their power. Now, while Ense largely focused on driving people to vote for candidates who decide our policies, Claudia is driving citizens toward each other to help us decide those policies for ourselves. After the break, Claudia Falitz takes our participation pillar to the next level. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox but a feeling like ah, being transported to a tropical island retreat. 
imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hello. Hi, Bertunde. Really, really lovely to see you. And well, virtually this time, but it was great to see you in Paris recently. Yes, it was. Um, are you in Paris right now? I am indeed. How's it? How's it feel? Um, dark. <laughs> okay, good, good. Not good, but it just Paris also gets dark. That's that's nice to be reminded. I'm just thinking of sunshine and rooftops. Um, so yeah, let's let's jump into this. Uh, since 2018, you've been part of this growing movement of people trying to take this theory out of academia and textbooks and put it into the real world. A theory called deliberative democracy. Can you define what deliberative democracy is? What does it look like? Yeah, I think that's a good starting point before we get into any examples or anything else as well, because I think deliberation is one of those words that we hear sometimes, but we don't often take the time to even define it. So deliberation actually at its heart is, it's a form of communicating with others with a spirit of having an open mind, of being willing to give reasons for why we believe in something, but also with the spirit of trying to find common ground. So this theory of deliberative democracy is the premise of democracy being about deliberation at its heart. And the work that I've been doing has been about citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries and other forms that deliberative democracy has been taking, which give this a bit more structure. So when I think about how we describe ourselves in terms of what our democracy is, the phrase representative democracy comes to mind. And we think about bodies of representation, national assemblies, congresses, senates, which themselves are deliberative. In the U.S., we say it's the world's greatest deliberative body. And everything you just described sounds like what we are supposedly already up to. Can you tease out any difference between what we think of as representative democracy versus what is being called deliberative democracy? So today what we have come to be calling representative democracy has been so kind of bound with the idea of elections. And, Mm. you know, I think if we go back actually and we take a step back from this, um, you know, elections have never actually in the longer history of political philosophy been considered a form of democracy. Um, Stop, stop, stop. (laughs) Elections. (laughs) That's like a big newsflash to a lot of people. Can you just say that one more time for the people in the back and explain that little piece of it? Yeah. I mean, if we go back to, well, go back to Aristotle, but political philosophers in between until about 100 years ago, the notion of constituting a body by elections has been considered a form of constituting an oligarchy. So meaning rule by the few. (laughs) Indeed. And so I think it's a really important point that we've sort of 
only very recently in history come to associate elections with democracy. And even if we take a step back to the point in history around the time of the French and American revolutions, which is I suppose the moment when this modern conception of the institutions of representative democracy as we think of them today were kind of initiated and then modeled and expanded to other parts of the world since then. If you look in the declaration in the US, in the constitution, if you look in all sorts of other historical and archival documents, that term was not used. Those institutions were actually set up to be intentionally oligarchic, meaning concentrating power in the hands of the few. And it's only much, much later, when suffrage began expanding, did the term representative government start morphing into the term representative democracy. And today we often just say democracy, and that's it. But actually, just because we're using that term doesn't actually necessarily yeah. make it democratic. I mean, I love this context. It reminds me Back in season two of this show, uh, we started that season off with Astra Taylor, who is a documentarian and historian and a kind of debt rights activist uh, for liberating people from their debts. And she studied the history of the term democracy and the practice as, as the Greeks helped develop it. And she shocked us with a similar kind of revelation that elections were oligarchical and that the Greeks actually conscripted people, you know, random folks from society. And I joked that, you know, it was instead of jury duty, it was like citizen council duty and water department duty. And you just kind of got thrown into the mix, which is one way of making sure you have a different type of representation. Uh, even the idea that people who win elections are charismatic and extroverted and thus not truly representative of the people, because it self-selects for a certain type of person. Does that align with your understanding of the history as well, that this, you know, elections themselves, as you said, have been oligarchic, that this goes back as far as, as the Greeks and even the Romans? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this goes far, far back. But I would say that also yeah. this idea of democracy as deliberation is something that yeah. also goes far back and is widespread also in indigenous communities and many non-Western cultures, because I think we also have a tendency to talk a lot about ancient Greece as though it is somehow yeah. the pinnacle of democracy. And of course, there's a lot of inspiration to be found there, too, but it's not the only place. Yeah, let's. we're going to keep moving. I just want to let listeners know we'll put a link to that Astra Taylor episode in the show notes for this, so you can kind of dive even deeper into her history of what the Greeks did and didn't do uh, and what made them nervous. A lot of things that still plague us to this day. Claudia, citizens' assemblies, you've used the word already. When did you first learn about this idea uh, of randomly grabbing people from the public to serve in some participatory, deliberative fashion? Well, you know, it's been about 10 years that I've now been doing work on deliberative democracy in, in some way or other. And I first came across these ideas when reading the work of David Van Raybrook in his okay. book Against Elections. And it was a bit of a revelation for me because I was doing work at the time on populism. And my research was focused on trying to understand the extent to which people's disillusionment with politics, with the system, this feeling of not having a voice or a genuine say or ability to really shape the decisions affecting your life. To what extent was this driving this wider trend of populism? And from that work, I became really convinced that this was one part of it. It's not the only thing, but if it's a core part of it, then it's yeah. never going to be top-down policies that actually gets to a heart of people feeling like they have agency and they can be citizens in the way you're using the term here. And so this 
led me into exploring this world of democratic innovation a bit more broadly, looking at all sorts of different things like crowdsourcing policy and, and you know, more participatory ways of involving people. But it was when I came across this idea of citizens' assemblies that it was like an aha moment of feeling like this could get to the heart of some of those underlying drivers of the problems we have in democracy today and not just things that are trying to treat the symptoms of the problems that we're facing. You mentioned 2010 and coming across some of this work, you've studied this and I want to understand, I know you have these a big database you created, many examples of all kinds of deliberatively democratic activities across the world. Where were you when you did this work and why did citizen assemblies of all forms jump out to you? Mm, yeah, so I was at the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which is an international organization of member countries. And while I was there, I was I set up and then I was leading the work around the future of democracy, which actually was called that at the time officially today. Uh, For, that just sounds like a high pressure situation. You're at the OECD leading up work on the future of democracy. Did you feel a lot of pressure? Because I feel like literally the world is counting on you. <laughs> I probably did not think uh, about it in that way at the time. Oh, it was okay. more just Sorry like I was head down yeah. in the data collection. <laughs> yeah, okay. um, but I mean, it, it is driven overall that, that work and the work I'm doing today by a real sense of urgency of needing to be looking at not just the analysis of the problems that we have. Obviously, that needs to be the starting point. But I feel like where we need to put more energy is into thinking about what are the solutions and what are the ways we could be trying to really do things differently. And that's why I feel like this world of citizens assemblies has been so inspiring to me. Maybe actually before I continue, we take a moment to define what is a citizen's assembly actually, yes. because I want to give some examples and talk more in depth then before Great. being able to do that. Um, so by citizen's assemblies, what I'm talking about is when a government or a public authority convenes a broadly representative group of people, usually it's somewhere between 50 to 150 people, and tasks them with a policy problem to solve. So one real-life example was, how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 in a spirit of social justice? So there's a problem to be solved. A public body convenes a group of broadly representative people through a process of a lottery, but also ensuring that that group of people is broadly representative of the wider public. So the technical term for that is stratification. It's what polling companies do when they do polls to try and get a representative sample. So there's a lottery with stratification to bring together a group of people that anybody looking at them can say, there's someone like me that's part of this. Mm. And then these people have the time and the resources to be able to grapple with the complexity of that issue. So the issue that I just named, you know, nine months of deliberation to be able to listen to experts, listen to stakeholders, get information, to listen to one another, and then do that hard work of finding common ground on a shared set of policy proposals. Now, those proposals can take the shape of proposed legislation, proposed regulation, uh, topics for a referendum, um, kind of general public policies. And so this is what I'm talking about when I talk about a citizens' assembly. This sort of process with a large group of people, relatively large but small enough to be broadly representative of a public, who have the time and resources over a long period of time to really grapple with an issue. Do these people get paid? You just mentioned nine months. This is now a job. How do you make sure people can afford to participate in something like this? Yes, people get paid most of the time. So I don't want to generalize because actually the data in the OECD database shows 
in detail if you want to look into it yeah. that it's not always the case in some countries there's more of a especially at the local level more of an attempt to make this a, a civic and voluntary process so there's a bit of a debate in the field but most of the time people get paid childcare is provided if it's in person transport costs are covered if it's online there's computers or technical support provided if needed you know it's important to actually break down those barriers to participation and I think part of what has made Citizens Assembly so inspiring as well is that there has been this concerted effort in the field to really create the conditions for participation to be possible because sometimes we say that people don't really want to participate or they, why would they want to give up nine months but actually we have more than enough evidence to show that people are willing to participate and it's also about creating the conditions for this to be meaningful but also really possible in a, in a very practical sense as well. Willingness to participate, meaningful, and possibility. All of those things are interesting to me because the example that most of us have access to is jury duty. And what you've described as a citizen assembly sounds like super jury duty. <laughs> and uh, we feel certain types of ways about jury duty. Most of us try to avoid them. Uh, it's complicated. We're rendering a yes-no decision on something, but we're very empowered, right? In terms of civic duty, someone's life might literally be in our hands. And it's, it's randomized. I don't know if it has all the stratification and representation that you've described, but it's the closest we have access to. How does, citizen, how does the citizen assembly compare to jury duty in terms of our more common reference point with everything you just described that's involved? Mm. So I, I think jury duty is probably the best analogy of what most people will be familiar with in the, on the premise yeah. of it. It does differ a little bit because usually it's a larger group of people. Um, and also usually it is facilitated. So in juries, um, the jury members just deliberate with one another, whereas in citizens' assemblies, there's independent and skilled facilitators that are there mm. to try and also create those conditions to... You know, there's always going to be people who are naturally more confident and inclined to, to speak up in a public setting. You know, I'm one of them. You're probably one of them, too. Um, I don't know what you're talking about, <laughs> Claudia. What do you mean? Uh, I just I'd be sitting out in the corner, just taking notes, observing. I don't like to talk. <laughs> So, there, so there's facilitators who, who very kindly ensure that those people who naturally speak more, more confidently than others are not the only ones who yeah. speak to bring yeah. in those who are less inclined to also, you know, be there to create the, the sort of trusted environment that is needed in the room as well. This idea of populism, people feeling disenfranchised and just a higher degree of polarization, um, a lot of that feels like it's driven by technology, the idea that we live further apart ideologically from each other, information silos, the whole thing that's been studied in its own right. Does tech have a role in the opposite end in sort of enhancing our ability to deliberate? Uh, I think about Audrey Tang and V Taiwan and what the people of Taiwan have done with tech to bring more citizens into the flow. But then I'm also thinking about insurrections and misinformation. And so what what is your analysis and what have you seen in terms of tech's contribution to populism and some of the, the drivers creating the need for more deliberation, which tech could also provide some solutions for. 
Mm. Yeah, well, I think you're right that tech is on both sides of the problem. And it's also part of why, for me, technology is not the starting point in terms of the, mm. the first thing I think about when we're talking about democracy and the problems with it, but also the potential solutions. I feel like we first need to have this lens of looking at actually what are our institutions and what are the processes that we use to try and decide who decides and how we're taking those decisions. And then the question is, where does technology come into that? And how can it be supporting and creating that environment that really enables people to, um, I suppose, hear that diversity of perspectives, but also create the space to really listen to one another? Because I feel like that's also part of what just looking through the tech lens angle we sometimes miss if we jump straight into talking and thinking about technology and where it fits in. I, I love that answer. And I love people hearing this to really hear that we don't start with the technology. You don't start with the hammer, right? You say, what am I trying to build? And you realize what tools you need to create that world you're trying to live in. So thank you for emphasizing that. Have you been a member of a Citizens Assembly yourself? No, I wish. <laughs> and oh, I'm hoping what? that one day uh, as this practice actually expands, I'll, have, I'll be lucky enough to be, to be selected. I do know people yeah. who've, been, who've been members, I mean, both actually on a personal level now when it's getting to a point of some of my friends being excited of like, oh my gosh, I've just received a letter, but also having been in touch with and interviewed some of the people who've been part of, yeah. of different processes. Well, I hope you get that call too. Uh, in the city that you're living in right now, the city of Paris, has a, a citizens assembly and you were involved in helping make that happen. So how did you get involved in the co-creation of this? Then let's talk about what they actually do. Mm, yeah, so Paris has a permanent citizens assembly as of December permanent. last year, indeed. Okay. And why I was involved actually is related to another story of a smaller place, which is a little bit well known, less well known, uh, but nonetheless interesting when it comes to, to looking actually at this bigger history of what's been going okay. on with citizens' assemblies. But there's this um, region in Belgium called Ostbelgian, which is the German-speaking community there. And they were the world's first place to establish a permanent citizens' assembly, which is effectively their second chamber of people selected by lottery. And I was involved in the group of experts that helped design that process there, which is related mm. to why when the vice mayor of Paris responsible for participation was inspired by this, I was also part of the group of people who was involved in, in thinking about how could we adapt some of the elements of this Ausbelgian yeah. model to a city like Paris. So you, you mentioned that there's a vice mayor for participation yeah. in Paris? See, jealous again. That, I've never <laughs> heard of such a thing. That's amazing. Normally politicians, they just want your participation to vote. And then they're done with you. So this is interesting that they're in inviting it. What were the conditions in Paris or in France that had someone at relatively high levels of elected government asking for more citizen participation, which I can imagine some elected officials seeing as eroding their own power? Mm, yeah, I mean, some I think see it that way and some see yeah. it as the evolution of democracy and the need to be also expanding people's power by creating meaningful ways for people to be able to also be participating in a more ongoing way. So Paris actually has had a quite quite deep participatory culture for quite some time. So it really You mean when they behead everybody every 30 years? <laughs> mm, <laughs> That's I'm talking very about more contemporary history, maybe in the past decade <laughs> okay. or, or, or two. Um, 
where, you know, it's one of the first cities that had implemented participatory budgeting on a much bigger scale. There are different local arrondissements, citizens' councils, so not with people mm. by lottery, but, you know, there's already different forms of councils. There's a youth council, there's a council of Europeans living in Paris. So there's different mechanisms that exist for people to be able to be influencing things in this city in an ongoing way already. Yeah. Thanks for the context. I get that you were working on a project in Belgium that gave you a little credibility to roll up into Paris's participatory culture. What does it mean for someone to be a part of this assembly? What what power do they actually have? And what are the responsibilities? There's a few different aspects to this. So I'll, okay. I'll try to explain it in, in the simplest way possible. But Great. basically the system with the permanent Paris Citizens Assembly works is that there are a hundred people that form this Citizens Assembly and they are people living in Paris. So not okay. necessarily French citizens. So I technically could have been chosen uh, as yeah. a Canadian living here. And they're broadly representative of the diversity of Parisians. And their mandate lasts for one year. And okay. there's a combination of them being able to have an agenda setting role. So deciding what issues should be on the table that they deliberate on. But they okay. also come up with policy recommendations. And the, um, let's say, the legal mechanism that established this assembly allows for them to be able to either put forth what is called a wish to the city council, which is the same thing that the city councillors are able to do as well. So this means that they're able to suggest that they would really like something to happen and it necessitates a, a response and a debate within that council. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, they're actually able to draft local laws, which again is then required to have a deliberation and a debate and a vote by the elected city council members on the back of this. Another mandate of the Citizens' Assembly is that it decides the theme of the next year's participatory budget. So it has a big impact on the investment decisions of the city in that more indirect way. And it also has the ability to choose a topic for a more one-off citizens jury, which is a smaller group of people. And again, that citizens jury also is able to potentially draft a, a local law to be deliberated by the mm. by the city councillors. So it's a little bit complex, <laughs> but yeah, at the same yeah. time, that is also, I think, something we need to keep in mind that democratic innovation is not necessarily simple or easy. And it's not just about like, oh, why don't we just replace the politicians that we have in some of the existing chambers with people selected by lottery? I think it also requires new ways of thinking about the kinds of roles that citizens can be playing in the system, like agenda setting, yeah. because that's also not something we see very often today. So agenda setting, budget influence, at least on the part of the budget that is open and participatory, kind of defined by the people, and nominating proposals, nominating laws that are required to have a debate, you know, in the elected system, so to speak. So that that is getting closer and closer to just fully exercising power. Do you have any sense of what the experience is like? Like, what are people who are a part of this saying? What does it mean to be a member and, and are they changed by this process? Mm. Well, I think sometimes at the very beginning, there's a sense of almost disbelief, like, is this even really happening? Because it's actually quite new and different to be yeah. asked to play such a, a longer term and meaningful role in shaping decisions. It's not the same as like, oh, come along to this town hall meeting for an hour and tell us what you think about something. It's like, will you engage for a full year 
and take mm. on all these different responsibilities. And, you know, I've been observing some of the sessions of, of the Paris Assembly in particular, and it's just really powerful to see because it's also people from 16 years and over. So, you know, the 16-year-old next to the 80-year-old, and you wow. just really see actually the diversity of the city in the room in a way that you don't when you go to see any elected chamber basically <laughs> anywhere. And that in itself is really moving. And then yeah. and it's almost in the more informal moments of interaction during the coffee breaks when you see actually the, the relationships that have clearly formed between people who never would have met otherwise. And, you know, you listen to, to them talking about the propositions they've come up with and, and giving the rationale and the explanations for why they came to this decision and why it was hard and maybe the considerations they had. And again, it's just it's just quite a different form of democracy than we're used to because we see a lot of debate where people come into a chamber with their pre-prepared statement that they read yeah. and it doesn't even force them to listen to what anybody else says. And on the other hand, you have a deliberation where people are all listening to the same information and evidence and then they're listening to one another and then they're really trying to find okay where can we agree to really take this forward it, this sounds like a magical fictional place in the u.s i think you'd call this meeting and like 30 percent of the folks would show up with automatic weapons and then you'd have a QAnon contingent you know saying this assembly doesn't exist or it's all a plot to kidnap children, like there'd be conspiracy theorists, Alex Jones's people would show up. It'd be madness. And you, what you're describing has patience and listening and a spirit of shared participation and respect. I think that's that's the word that's kind of, there's a respect for everyone's participation in the system, which is not the experience that most of us have observed or felt when we think about politics as practiced today. So what's different in the water or, or what's different in the process that allows for all these beautiful things you just described to actually be real? <laughs> I just love the way you described it. It's like all of that is exactly why this gives me hope <laughs> and why yeah. I'm so interested in studying this for so long. You know, and it doesn't just magically happen on its own. It's also about designing the conditions for this to be possible. And so that's where I, it's really important, actually, that there's a fair and transparent process to do the random selection so that everybody mm. actually has an equal chance of being selected to be part of this. And so that group of people really does reflect the diversity of a community that is, you know, whether it's Paris or, or elsewhere. And then creating enough time for people to really be able to grapple with the complexity of an issue. So if you give people an issue like, should we change the constitution on abortion, which is what people in Ireland really deliberated about, you're obviously not going to give them an hour or even just one day. In Ireland, people deliberated for five months about that before coming to recommendations, not just about whether or not there should be a referendum to change the constitution, which they said there should be, but also yeah. how should the legislation change if people were to vote for change in the referendum. So again, it's complex. Mm. And so you need to yeah. have the time and it needs to be fair in terms of the diversity of information that people hear from. So there was a mix of people on both sides of the issue in terms of advocates for and against, people telling personal stories, researchers sharing their research on this issue, and then people actually having a lot of time also to listen yeah. to one another, to give justification for why they believe something or why not, and to come up with their shared recommendations for the government. And again, the skilled facilitation 
matters. The fact right. that this is something that will actually be taken seriously, I think, is also part of what gets those people who might not vote or might not do other civic things into the room because there's a sense that, oh, actually, this is important and it can have an impact. It's not just being done for a research experiment. Um, right. So there's all these different design elements for this to be effective, but also for it to be democratic. Democratic small d. That's the point. I slightly kid, but honestly not, about just the levels of polarization and, and near to actual violence that we experience in our political system. I'm thinking, you know, back to the yellow vest protest in France and traffic is stopped and people are so upset about fuel tax associated with trying to, you know, fight climate change. Where does that energy live in a citizen assembly context in France? Are yellow vest people showing up and listening and people listening to them? So the yellow vest movement in France led to what was called the Great Debate there were all sorts of different kind of town hall meetings and different online forms of people bringing up ideas and, and so forth. And one of the main things that kept coming up and up actually was the proposition to have a citizens assembly to be able to take this energy, take these different ideas, but also to create the conditions for it to be a broadly representative group of people from French society who would be able to grapple with this issue for a longer period of time. And so that example I gave earlier on about how do we reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 40% by 2030 in the spirit of social justice was the actual question that French people were tasked with coming up with propositions for in the French Citizens' Assembly on climate that really you could trace the origins of why did this even take place back to yeah. the energy that had emerged around the, the Yellow Vest movement. Well, that sounds promising. So we have examples in the city of Paris. We've got examples in Belgium. We've got Ireland and the, the constitutional amendment process around abortion. And then there's another example in Brussels uh, around climate that's you know, issue specific. What do you accomplish with a singular focus versus something more broad and evolving and emerging as the Parisian example? And what could the citizen assembly model generate that all the NGOs and activists and academic researchers and policymakers who are clearly focused on climate issues, especially in Europe, not get done? Mm. You know, I finished the story about France in, in a way as though it makes it sound great and amazing. And, and, <laughs> and parts of it are in the sense that, you know, there was a climate bill that then was passed that had a lot of the recommendations from the Citizens' Assembly on climate. Okay. But actually a lot of the recommendations also got watered down and ignored when they got put back into the traditional political process. Mm. And seeing the evidence of this happen over and over again is part of my frustration of feeling like clearly this approach of just adding on a one-off Citizens' Assembly to a system that has a completely different set of incentives at heart with the short termism, the party politics, the campaign financing, the lobbying and so on. It's not working to actually change who's deciding and how those decisions are taken at the end of the day. And so now we have the example in Brussels where there is an institutional basis created for a citizens assembly to be able to have an ongoing say in all sorts of different climate related policy issues all the time. And again, the fact that this is permanent also allowed us to think about how do we ensure that there's an agenda setting role. So it's also in the very first cycle and instance, it's going to be the ministers who set what is the topic and what are the issues that they deliberate on. But in the second cycle, it's going to be 
a proportion of that first citizens' assembly who are going to be randomly selected to decide on what should be the issue for the next one. And this is going to be a feedback loop in a, in a circular way. And then also amongst the citizens' assembly members, there's again going to be a randomly selected smaller group of them, of 10, who will be charged with also then monitoring and following on the progress of what happens with their recommendations after they've been passed off to government. Because that's also a downside of just having a one-off assembly, yeah. is that where's the real holding to accountability afterwards? So yeah. what's interesting about the Brussels Permanent Climate Assembly is I think this thinking about how do we establish new institutions that could actually create a basis for these citizens' assemblies to have genuine power is really interesting and I think that's where we need to be putting more energy into exploring this. After the break, should elections even exist? From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Is it your not-so-secret mission to just do away with elections and, and elected politicians altogether? <laughs> um, I think you can 
wouldn't say that. Uh, I think it's maybe a blunt way to describe it because I don't want this to come across the wrong way. I feel like a lot of people who go into politics do so because they want to change their communities and they want to make the world a better place. And I don't want this to just be some sort of politician bashing. I really feel like it's a systemic problem. The short-termism, the fact that you know, party politics and campaign financing and all these things come out on top in terms of what are the incentives for the collective public decisions we're taking. These are features, not bugs, of the system that we have today. And so how do we redesign the system and how do we shift power to new institutions of citizen participation, representation by law and deliberation? This is really the mission that motivates and inspires me to do the work that I'm doing and also with all the other people I'm working with because I'm not alone in, in all of this either well i i'm i'm excited and i think if i'm hypothesizing that if you did public opinion polling about how people feel about the electoral representative political system and how they feel about the sortition based (laughs) more lottery based citizen assembly political system you'd have very different opinions on which is legitimate which is trusted if these things are working as designed Uh, Is that the direction of the feedback so far? Do people who know about this process, whether they're a part of it themselves or not, have more faith in it? I think we need to be humble about the research that exists because I think a a part of the problem with research in this field is that there's still relatively low levels of awareness and understanding of citizens' assemblies. Now, that depends on the country. So in places like Ireland, for example, where citizens' assemblies have been a kind of normal part of how politics is done at the national level for a decade, most people today have heard about citizens' assemblies. Mm. And people in the latest polling say that they see citizens' assemblies as the place to really take decisions on the hardest issues that politicians are stuck on. Um, So there's a sense of understanding of the fact that this works and and there's also polling around the levels of trust in it. There was some recent polling that was done in France, the UK, Germany and Belgium, or not Belgium, um, Italy, which found that the majority of people, when you also explained a little bit what the Citizens' Assembly is, trusted this and wanted to see more of them happening and also wanted their recommendations to be binding, not just advisory. And I think that's where we see a real shift in opinion today as well. I hope a lot for this. (laughs) And I know it's not a, a single solution to the myriad of problems, but it seems like a major contributor to a set of solutions through a different process and mechanism. Who are you, Claudia? Like, why do you care so much about this? I don't know many people who obsess over the future of democracy and commit their professional life's work to it. How were you raised? What what, what was your diet that put this into your mind uh, where this is what you're doing? And you mentioned being from Canada. Is it because you're Canadian? Like, tell us about your your biography a little bit that led you to, to care so much about this? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a, yeah, it's a good question. Well, I'm Canadian from a Polish background, so hence my name. Um, first person in my family who grew up in, in Canada. So, I mean, I'm sure that this no doubt shaped in, in some ways my view of the world. My parents left Poland in the early 1980s when it's quite a different regime that was in place there at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Part of my story is also the fact that I started my studies in 2008. Literally one of the first days of my studies, I was in London when Lehman Brothers crashed. So this notion of... And now for an explainer Tunde. The historic stock market crash of 2008 wiped out huge chunks of Americans' retirement savings, drove millions out of work, 
and led to the collapse of some of the world's largest financial institutions. Among them was Lehman Brothers, the New York-based investment bank founded in the 1840s, which was one of the country's largest firms with around 25,000 employees worldwide. Unlike many other banks and financial giants that governments deemed too big to fail, when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt in September 2008, there was no bailout. At the time, its shuttering was the largest bankruptcy in the United States, and it's considered one of the tipping points that led to the global financial crisis of 2008. All right, now you learned something. Let's get back to Claudia. I was in London when Lehman Brothers crashed. So this notion of crisis, economic crisis, European sovereign debt crisis, democratic crisis, this has been sort of a part of the lens through which I've seen the world yeah. for quite some time. And I think was part of actually what got me interested in politics and in wanting to study politics and yeah, it certainly wasn't what I intended to study because, like I said, I was doing research on populism. There were only nine of us in my class at the time when we did it. It was a very niche topic. <laughs> oh, that's adorable. <laughs> and <now. laughs> then, and then I hadn't studied deliberative democracy during my studies. These were all ideas I've come across later, and I think yeah. part of it stems from the fact I'm not just talking about other people when I'm referring to research or this sense of of disillusionment with the system and how things work. Like I'm one of those people. I really feel personally a sense of, of disillusionment with how things work but I also feel like we cannot give up hope that things could be different because it's in that uncertainty around hope that motivates us into action and to say that you know mm. we are all capable of making some changes to actually do things differently to change the way things work you know the danger zone is when we get into a sense of hopelessness of feeling like well yeah. and fatalism of thinking well this is just the way it is or it's so hard or it feels impossible and it's like yeah, of course it's not easy but I think when we see and hear about these really inspiring examples that's what shows us that actually we're not limited to trying to save this broken system that we have we really could be working towards something else Yes, yes. Build the new system, attract us all to kind of migrate there. We we had a, a really relevant question from a listener submitted ahead of time from uh, Florian uh, Schwendiger, I hope I'm pronouncing that reasonably, who says, what's key to create buy-in and ownership with the political decision makers themselves to support making these things permanent and increasing the amount of power that you might distribute to the citizens, not merely through elections, but through things like citizen assemblies. How do you get them to want to do this for real? Mm. Yeah, and this element of the almost the political strategy of how do we get there is just yeah. as important to making this a reality. Well, my experience of, of working in this field for a long time, and I suppose particularly in the last few years when there has been growing interest in this idea of making these things permanent, stems from the fact that I've encountered so many people who are within the system today, whether that's as elected officials or presidents of parliament or senior civil servants, who are just as dissatisfied with how the system works from within and mm -hmm. who have been inspired by these different examples in different places and see that actually this could be another way of doing things. And the motivations are different. If we, if we take the Ostbelgian example, for instance, in, in German-speaking region of Belgium, 
It was the president of the parliament and the president of the government from two different political parties who came together and said, well, we did this one citizens assembly and it really helped us solve this issue around affordable childcare. And we see the trends kind of more widely around populism, around people not trusting the system, around feeling disillusioned with how things work. And we really want to make a change and establish a permanent way for these citizens' assemblies to be part of how our democracy functions here in Ostbelgian. And so this was the motivation for them. And it was unanimously across party lines that people voted in the Ostbelgian parliament to establish this new permanent yeah. institution. So I feel like there's a shared sense in many places of the fact that we have a suboptimal way of taking collective decisions today. And people are more or less inclined to really believe that or to be wanting to, in some ways, give up some of their power to make the change happen. But yeah. I do believe there's enough of those initial change makers out there to be those leaders showing us that another democracy and another politics is possible. How do you ensure that this more deliberative democracy with things like, but not limited to citizens' assemblies, actually distributes increasingly real power to the people. And it's not just advisory uh, and it's not just agenda setting. How do we make sure that happens? Well, this is the whole challenge of what we're trying to do now at Democracy Next. And, and you know, I, I say this in the sense that we don't really have real examples today where there is genuine mm. power with these assemblies. Like, they're all to some extent advisory, and we have more or less, like, in the institutionalized, like, the permanent models, that's where we have the most mechanisms in place to ensure there's at least accountability, a follow-up, a need to respond, monitoring of what happens with those recommendations. But it's still not the same as citizens actually having the decision-making power themselves. And so I think part of why we haven't seen that, though, is that the dominant narrative today is these citizens' assemblies are just something that could or should complement our existing institutions. And it's something that might, you know, enhance or help strengthen representative democracy as we know it today. And yeah. I feel like that actually has been detrimental to making the real fundamental change happen. And that's why we're trying to shift the narrative and open up an imagination that actually another democratic future is possible and that we could be shifting power to citizens' assemblies. And this could eventually really be the heart of a democratic system if we start to make those steps taking us in that direction. And it means questioning the primacy of elections. It means really bringing up our, our history of philosophy and thinking like, actually, elections are not a democratic form of governing ourselves. And this is not the only way we could or should be doing things. Yeah. And it seems radical, I think, to some people to say these things today. And I think it's only when we start to question our own assumptions in this time of deep crisis and open up an imagination that another way could be possible that we're going to start seeing the real shifts of power. And I think that's what excites me is to get us out of this stuck mentality that, you know, we hear so often democracy is dying, democracy is dead. It's this competition between a dying democracy and, and a, to say the least, questionable authoritarianism on the other hand. And like, this is the false binary choice that we're presented with. We can do the like Xi Jinping model, or we can do the corrupt, lobbyist-driven, capitalistic, extractive, quote-unquote, democracy model. And so what you're highlighting and helping accelerate is just another thing is possible. Another democracy is possible. 
when I think about the outcomes from citizen assemblies, my question is, what is the goal, right? Is it consensus, right? Everybody comes through this beautiful process and they all agree and then they submit it to the system for taking it seriously. Is it just another version of majority rule in, in smaller groups? And what does that facilitation look like in the process? So they're not entirely connected, but I think the biggest question is, what's the actual outcome? It's worth actually bringing out the fact that consensus does not mean 100% of people 100% agree with everything because mm. that's not possible. And I would say it's also not desirable because in a democracy, there's also a value of pluralism and acknowledging the fact that people actually have different values and different yeah. priorities and different ideas. And so it's why it's important to create enough space and time for people to be able to acknowledge those differences and that then in spite of those differences do that really hard work that also takes time of saying okay where can we find common ground between us and so usually within these citizens assemblies it's around 75 to 80 percent of people who get to a point of finding some agreement on a recommendation for it to be a recommendation of the group again there's yeah. a justification and an explanation of why did we come to this thinking why do we propose this all together and then usually actually the reports of the citizens assemblies have something called a minority report at the end, where those views that didn't reach majority mm. view or consensus are still nonetheless acknowledged and their reasoning is put forth. But it's also explained that, you know, this only had 10% of the support of the wider group of people here. So it's not a recommendation of the collective, but we nonetheless acknowledge that these ideas were talked about and expressed by some. And, you know, is yeah. it a perfect system? Perhaps not. I don't think anything is, but I think it's a much greater improvement on the current way in which we're currently trying to take decisions through political party point scoring and debates and trying to win rather than trying yeah. to find where do we find enough common ground between us. The word that you use that lands most strongly with me is acknowledge and that this is a process where people can feel acknowledged. And if you have participated and been heard, and interacted and engaged, you may not get everything you want. In fact, most of us never do. <laughs> but if you, if the process acknowledges you, then we should all feel more invested in that process. We use the word citizen on this show, how to citizen. We interpret it as a verb. We have a whole series of principles we think define that. Given your work and your heavy use of the word as well, how do you define citizen if you interpret it as a verb? What does that mean? I think it's one of those words we need to reclaim <laughs> in the same way I think we need to reclaim democracy from elections because I think there's a, a debate going on almost of like, should we use citizen in this context? Should we talk just about people's assemblies? You know, and I think it's actually important that we use this word citizen in that mm. civic sense of the term, which is much more universal than just referring in any way to what passport somebody holds. That's again something that quite recently in history, we've reduced the notion of what that concept of citizen means to that. Whereas actually citizen has this much broader meaning. And I really share the version of how you talk about it as a verb as well, because it does mean to participate. And it means to be really 
living with and understanding with what power means and also in a collective way it's not something you do on your own to be a citizen it's something you do with others that you're sharing a community with and i think all those aspects really get captured in this word citizen and we need to keep using it because it's an important word that we shouldn't give up to the people who want to narrow it down to a very very narrow meaning Thank you. We have arrived at the end of the just me part of this, and I'm going to shift into the audience Q&A. Okay, Robert, you are here. It looks like you are off mute. So go ahead uh, and ask your question. My name is Robert Weitz, and uh, I work with a group called Modern Populace, and we're thinking about some of these things about deliberative democracy. Uh, My question was, representative selection by sortition seems great, but deliberation can be top down or it can be more bottom up. And sometimes that top-down limits engagement and bottom-up can be more disruptive. So my question is, who really owns the process of citizen assemblies? And by own the process, I mean, you said that it was oftentimes open, but is that really accepted or you know satisfying to the populace as a whole? Thank you, Robert. It's a good question. I think it raises a bit of attention that there has been in this field as well about the way to really make change happen. And I think you need both bottom-up and top-down initiatives because we see that they end up also having different dynamics and different impacts. So actually, if we go back to 2011, one of the biggest bottom-up citizens' assemblies that was organized was in Belgium, and it was called the G1000. And David Van Raybrook, who wrote Against Elections, who I mentioned earlier, was part of this, along with a group of other activists. And it was during the period when there was no government for over 500 days in Belgium. And so citizens took it into their own hands to organize a bottom-up citizens' assembly with a thousand people who, at the time, they just convened for one day and they brought them together to write up all sorts of different propositions for what should we actually be doing in this period with no government. Now, the government actually ended up forming shortly afterwards. They didn't do much of anything of what came out of this, but it wasn't a failure because I think it's what prompted the seeds of this becoming such a prominent form of, of democracy within Belgium. There's initiatives happening at all different levels. I've only mentioned a few of the examples here today. And so I think it's important to have the bottom-up kinds of things happening, but we also see that with the kinds of citizens' assemblies that have been organised by activists or by civil society or by academia, there is an effect on who ends up participating in something when it's not linked in any way to power or authority. You have a bit much bigger bias of who's willing to give up their time to, to talk about something for a period of time. People are more likely to drop out, which has also a, a dynamic on the deliberation. And so when it is initiated by authority, there is nonetheless a much greater chance of of a much more representative group of people who are willing to take the time to do this but also for there to be real impact so even though i was saying that part of what why i'm doing what i'm doing today is driven by a disillusionment of seeing recommendations watered down or ignored we nonetheless have quite a few examples where at least the majority of the propositions do make their way into policy or into legislation or regulation. And citizens have been having a really important impact on shaping things like $5 billion 10-year investment plans in the city of Melbourne. Um, Canada's national regulation around tech companies is now being shaped largely by a national citizens assembly. So we do have enough evidence to show that actually it is important to have that top-down initiative to, to, to link it to authority. But again, I go back to why it's really interesting to be 
be thinking about how to make this permanent because we also need to be giving citizens the way of shaping the agenda because today it's so much shaped top down by who decides and how they frame a question or an issue or what might even be allowed to be on the table. And that needs to change as well. I mean, yeah, the answer, it sounds like an all of the above answer, but it's sequencing matters. And so yeah. you kind of start from the outside, work your way in, maybe start top down, shift to more bottom up to build trust, experience, best practices. Uh, our next question comes from Sarah Hughes. Hi, Sarah Hughes. Uh, she, they pronouns from the unceded territory of the Haudenosaunee people. Um, a lot of the circles I'm kind of engaging in now are imagining stateless society and what skills we need as citizens to operate with real sovereignty and on a community basis. Um, and going back to like the, you mentioned earlier, indigenous culture, and I'm glad you did because indigenous ways of knowing pre-state societies are informing a lot of what's happening now in the more radical community formation work. So I'm just curious what, what your thoughts are about um, kind of what's happening on the edges of this in terms of questioning state power in general. Thank you, Sarah, for putting probably the most difficult question <laughs> to me. And because my honest answer to that is, I don't know. Um, I think when we start to question certain aspects of the system as we have today, and we begin to unpick them, we realize actually how interrelated all these different other accepted norms and and concepts that we have today are and so one of them is around the state another one is around citizenship actually because in these citizens assemblies it's often not people who are citizens in that narrow sense of the term but anybody who's living in a place who can be part of them so what does that mean for for citizenship if these actually have power and it's anybody who's living in a place without necessarily a passport from that country that can participate the notion actually of what level of government is the most appropriate once we start to unpick the system it also puts into question actually like in what way is this the best way to to organize ourselves like these notions of, of local regional national government and the way we often have them broken down in many countries are not necessarily the best ways that we divide ourselves as communities and so all I'm saying is that I don't know the answer to the question, but I think that's something that we really need to be also thinking about. And by opening up the imagination and questioning the system that we have today, I think it allows us the room to be exploring these interrelated and really important questions as well. I love it. Uh, I will ask this question on behalf of Liza, um, which relates to who participates and, and what their experience might be if they don't have those official government papers, or culturally seen as not citizens. Uh, is there evidence for how threatened minority groups participating in a citizens' assembly, for example, in Paris, Muslim women and girls with hijabs, how have they fared in the process? Mm. I don't know enough about Paris in terms of the specific examples to, to answer it from that lens, but in terms of the broader yeah. lens and perhaps with, with the example of the mixed deliberative committees that exist in Brussels. So Brussels is one of the most diverse cities in the world, actually. 180 different nationalities, 100 different languages spoken. And so to make it 
again, as inclusive as possible, and perhaps there's even more that can be done, you know, the official invitation letters go out in the seven most commonly spoken languages in Brussels. Plus, when you go online, you can also access the invitation in, in other languages. Um, people who are not necessarily fluent in the main language of the deliberation, so in Brussels, this is often in, in Dutch or French or English, people can come with a buddy who helps to interpret for them so that they can still nonetheless participate and that buddy also receives the same payment or honorarium for their time the same conditions to be able to participate so that that person doesn't end up being limited by that again there's different aspects around having trained skilled facilitators who are there in the room to, in to create those conditions for people to really truly feel welcome as part of this there's the public communication that has been done that really helps convey that this is really welcome to anyone who's living in Brussels so there's all these different elements that come together that I think help as much as possible bring those people in who today I think feel excluded by the current system, who might find it hard to participate for one reason or another. Yeah. And I think we need to stop thinking it's because these people don't want to participate. And we need to find the different ways of, of how do we really create the conditions to make this as inclusive as possible. Thank you for that. We're going to try to squeeze one more in. It's Nick Kokoma, I believe. Hi, Claudia. Nick here from Boston. And my question is, given that liberal modern republic, electoral republics came about only through, at least in the case of the U.S. and France, through violent revolution, and we're talking about complete regime change, really, through sortition, how can we move from the current constitutional model towards a democracy by lottery system? And can you envision this working in both not only legislative, but also the executive and judicial branches as well. Small question. Thanks, Nick. Do we have to have a bloody revolution to get this going? And can it go beyond the legislative branch? Thanks, Nick. Yeah, indeed, a easy question to end with. First of all, to be clear, I am not calling for a bloody revolution. So this is not a call for people to pick up their pitchforks, literally. <laughs> um, but it is a call for people to take action. And I think that we can see regime change, if we want to call it that, happen also in a much more peaceful way. And, you know, if we look at the countries around the world that have both their monarchies and their parliaments with people selected by election in place, you, we, we have examples which show us that it's possible to still be in transition from different types of governance uh, in many places as well. And I think you know, realistically, there is going to be a combination of elections-based and sortition-based forms of democracy that coexist. And for me, the aim is to see over time having more and more genuine power really shifted to the sortition-based deliberative bodies. And I think we can see that happening in different ways. And I think it's part of why we need this happening in different spheres. You know, if anyone watched the launch event for Democracy Next, I had opened it with a kind of imagination exercise like imagine that we're in 2032 uh, and part of that was actually getting people to imagine that this morning you received an invitation to be part of your country's executive assembly and last year your best friend sat on the judicial selection commission which was set up to take the partisanship out of selecting judges and you know it went on and on but also to illustrate that I think actually we need to think beyond just the legislative branch and we also need to think beyond 
let's say, the traditional institutions of, of government. I think we need to also think about trade unions and public banks and central banks and the other institutions that have an impact on our public lives and how could we democratize the governance of those as well. So it's not going to happen overnight. I don't think we need to have violence to get there. We already see things like the Brussels Permanent Citizens Climate Assembly and the Permanent Paris Citizens Assembly. These to me are the first stepping stones that we can be building on to get to another democratic future. Claudia, you've been great. Thank you for expanding our imagination. Thank you for giving us a vision of something to fight for and not just against. And that's the spirit of what we're trying to offer up here at How to Citizen. Uh, you've been citizening great. And, and I look forward to drafting you into some kind of assembly soon because I want you to get high on your own supply, as we say in hip hop. <laughs> wonderful. Thank you, Baratunde. And thank you to everyone for all the wonderful questions. I look forward to continuing the conversation. So do we. So do we. Thanks, Claudia. This conversation got me thinking about trust and our need to give people something worth trusting, something we can believe in. I'm thinking back to my conversation with Adrienne Marie Brown in our first episode this season and her flip of this ancient I Ching text where she interprets it to say, if we trust the people, they become trustworthy. Now, y'all know we're currently in this downward spiral where the people don't trust their politicians and the politicians don't trust the people. The key to chipping away at that distrust of each other and of our systems is information and facilitation and true inclusion so we can involve as many people as possible in the act of self-governing. Through these citizen assemblies, Claudia is showing us that in a deliberative democracy, we get to practice coexisting with our differences around some pretty consequential policy discussions in a way that leaves people feeling more seen, acknowledged, and invested in the system even if we don't all get the outcome we want every time. I don't foresee a world where a majority of my neighbors are sitting on a citizen's assembly at any given time. But over time, a significant number of us should have that experience of service and participation. As usual, we have some actions you can take after listening to this episode. They fall into three categories personal reflection, getting more informed, and publicly participating. Our reflection prompt is inspired by the Democracy Next launch event. Imagine it's 10 years in the future, and we've established some new civic rituals, where once we anticipated and fretted over Election Day, now we look forward to Sortition Day, the day that public participants selected by lottery are assigned to various citizen assemblies. These bodies are comprised of rich and poor, old and young, documented and undocumented, and they decide on all manner of topics, judicial appointments, algorithmic oversight, local energy policy, and more. Imagine what it feels like to serve in one of these well-facilitated and compensated assemblies with your neighbors. Imagine what it would be like to read media coverage of the deliberations that focus on a community's attempt at finding common ground rather than who made the most outlandish statements on social media. What headlines do you see? Now, in terms of getting more informed, here's where you can learn more about citizen assemblies. Read the New Yorker essay by Yale University political science professor Helene Landmore. It's called Politics Without Politicians, which is just a great headline. Got to give it to them. For a deeper dive, read Landmore's book, Open Democracy. To see citizen assemblies in action, check out the Permanent Citizens Assembly in Paris 
or the Irish Citizens Assembly. That one features a special guest appearance from Jane Goodall. You can find links to both in the episode show notes. Finally, to participate publicly, we encourage you to subscribe to the Democracy Next newsletter. They'll be launching a global community of enthusiasts wanting to learn more and help build this next democratic paradigm. Visit the site at demnext.org, D-E-M-N-E-X-T dot org. And if you're ready to roll up your sleeves and start practicing democracy this way, look to the nonprofit democracywithoutelections.org. It has resources and organizations that can help you get started wherever you are in the world. If you take any of these actions, please brag about it online and use the hashtag HowToCitizen. Also, tag our Instagram, HowToCitizen. I am always online, and I really do see your messages, so send them. You can also visit our website, HowToCitizen.com, which has all of our shows, full transcripts, actions, and more. Finally, see this episode's show notes for resources, actions, and more ways to connect. How to Citizen with Baratunde Day is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and Row Home Productions. Our executive producers are me, Baratunde Thurston, and Elizabeth Stewart. Our lead producer is Ali Graham. Our associate producer is Danya Abdel-Hamid. Alex Lewis is our managing producer. And John Myers is our executive editor and mix engineer. Original music by Andrew Epen with additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio and Leila Bina. Next time on How to Citizen, what happens when you take urban planning and small d democracy and apply them to an internet community? And what if that community has a bank with millions of dollars in it? So much of civics is boring right now and unengaged. And ultimately, we're interested in shifting that narrative and that perception of civic participation to not just equating to voting in a, in a presidential election or voting in a local you know, district election, but instead voting in spaces you care about. Digital being one that our kids are probably spending 80% of their days and lives in. And so I think creating more interesting ways for people to have a say in their digital spaces that doesn't need to feel so complicated but can feel fun is something that we really, really care about. How I think about it is, imagine if the first thousand users of Facebook could actually weigh in on the advertising model. Like, would that have changed the outcomes? Listen to our next episode with Alex Zhang, mayor of the online Web3 community, Friends with Benefits. Row Home Productions. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. 
If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.